does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. Don Fisher, the voice of the Indiana Hoosiers, joins us now on the program. Uh, Don, I was listening to the game on Saturday. I went to the Navy Air Force game on Saturday in Annapolis, and I, I, I listened to the game. We didn't go to the whole game. Driving in, I'm listening to the game. The Hoosiers are tied, and then I get in the car after the game, and they're down 31-17, and, and it felt to me, Don, and I don't want to be negative Nancy here, but it felt like that was kind of the that was the final teeter in the seesaw for the Indiana football season in terms of the way the season might go, and that that was a big one they had to get, and they didn't get it. Am I being too pessimistic? Well, you're probably not being pessimistic based on what we saw on Saturday <laughs> because it wasn't good. But at the same time, they still have a chance to turn things around, even though this week. It is uh, unlikely to happen simply because they're playing one of the top ten teams in the country and the Penn State Nittany Lions at their place. But um, there is reason for optimism in the sense that there is still an opportunity for this team to turn it around because the last four games of the season are all games that they, if they play well, could they, they could be in. So I am not going down the road of total pessimism at this point. Yeah, and you know – Don, that game, what is it, and this is such an elementary, like, neophyte question, but what is it about Rutgers, man? You know what I mean? I mean, I, I think I think Rutgers is a nice pro. I think they're a good program, but it just seems like that is one that c- consistently gives Indiana fits, and they had to know going into that game what was at stake, right? And it just, I don't know, the second half, it was like a tale of two halves, but, but you saw it closer than I, so what did go wrong? Well, without question, the the thing that went wrong or the thing that was most important that went wrong was the fact that the special teams did not execute the game plan. (laughs) And I say that in a number of areas. Number one, obviously, the block punt, which, you know, that's that's just you can't that's inexcusable. And and I say that in the sense that Indiana has rarely had a block punt scenario take place. Uh, even though as a freshman, James Evans struggled with that a little bit, and he had a couple of problems in that area getting the ball off. But honestly, the truth of the matter is we, we, we get a block punt because, number one, we can't line up. And we had a guy out there telling people, you got to be over here, and one guy would move, and then Rutgers made an adjustment, and you have to move again. And by the time they got it settled, they should have probably called a timeout. But that didn't happen. And so, obviously, Indiana makes a mistake, gets the punt blocked, they run it in for a touchdown, and then they muff a punt. Jalen Lucas can't handle the the punt, uh, gives up the football right back, and they score another uh, field goal before the half. So those two plays happened in the second quarter that give uh, Rutgers all the momentum, and then going into the third quarter, Indiana doesn't move the ball effectively offensively, and the defense makes a huge mistake, giving up an 80-yard touchdown run to the quarterback, and you're sitting there going, what else wrong could possibly happen at this point because just about everything has. So the negativity right now, um, and that's what bothers most. Obviously, 
Indiana football is prone to negativity because of the traditional record that they have and the traditional problems that they have. But right now, you're looking at a ball club. At this point, you don't know where their mindset is in any way, shape, or form. And even though Tom Allen preaches the same thing week after week, and, yeah, we've got to fight through this and the resiliency and all those kinds of things, uh, I don't know if this team can bounce back from it. And that's why there is pessimism at this point, no question. Voice of the Hoosiers, Don Fisher, nice enough to take a few minutes with us. Don, I guess looking for a silver lining here, have they – found stability if that's the right word at the quarterback position with Brendan Sorsby is that the direction you think they stick with at least for the next couple games I think so I I, Tom Allen had the press conference today that's what I I I just left it and obviously he talked about the fact that Brendan Brendan Sorsby is going to be the starter for this upcoming game against Penn State unless something dramatically changes during the week I think we're going to see Suarez be out there again. He looked very good in the first quarter of the ball game. He wasn't as sharp after that. He threw some bad passes, um, got a little bit more pressure put on him by Rutgers during the game. Uh, wasn't quite as effective. I, I guess maybe the most the, the most fun thing or the most uh, optimistic thing that we saw was Trent Holland for the second straight week get opportunities and take advantage of them and really look like a powerful, strong, physical running back, uh, especially in the second half of this contest. And uh, if they can run the ball more effectively, it may take some pressure off the passing game because right now everybody thinks, well, Indiana's going to pass it because they can't run it. Don, this is kind of that interesting time of year where you cross over as well and you got basketball season coming into the mix. Um, to trans- transition over to that, Hoosier Hysteria, of course, was over the weekend in Indiana. Hard to believe this, you know, already getting set for Sunday coming up an exhibition against the University of Indianapolis. What most intrigues you right now about Mike Woodson's group and which player or two are you most interested to see what they might be able to do early for Indiana? Well, Kalil Ware obviously is the seven-foot kid from Oregon that transferred in from that school, and I, I, I'm definitely wanting to see how he plays. I want to see if he uh, is motivated, if he's a hard worker. Uh, I want to see. I know his skill level. I've watched him in practices, <clears throat> and I don't think there's any question he's got all the skill in the world for a guy that's seven foot tall. I mean, he's really got talent, but will. Indiana can Mike Woodson bring that out in him? Can he play hard all the time? Can he work his tail off? Will he work his on his own? That kind of thing. So I'm interested to see Kalel Ware because as a seven footer, that's exactly something that India has very rarely had. And to have a guy of that that talent level on top of being seven feet tall could make him really special. So he's the one guy I'd look at right now and say, yeah, I want to see how that's all going to play out. The other thing I'm looking at right now, guys, I'm very interested to see how Mike Woodson sets up his offense this year because, as we know, last year the pick and roll with Trace Jackson Davis uh, uh, or feeding the post on a consistent basis was the way Indiana was going to play the game, and it was understandable why they would do that, take the strength of the uh, you know, take advantage of the strength of the best player in your court, and that's what they did. This year, I think they have to spread the floor more. They, I think they have to have other people shoot the basketball. They've got to look at it from a different perspective, and I'm very interested to see how Mike Woodson goes about trying to set up how they play offensively this season. Don, has Mike Woodson 
for those that don't know, uh, McKenzie Mbako, who is a, a star prized recruit for Indiana, was arrested over the weekend uh, for two misdemeanors for not leaving a Taco Bell there in Bloomington. And the police said that he resisted when they were asking him to get out of the car, and thus he picked up a second charge for that. Uh, you know, I would anticipate, obviously, you've got to go through the judicial system. But based on precedent, or has Mike Woodson offered any insight as to what the discipline would be for him or how Indiana handles that situation? I'll know more about that later this week, Jake. I haven't talked to Mike yet. Uh, I'll be at practice uh, on Wednesday uh, for sure. Uh, I probably will learn more at that juncture, but honestly how it's going to be handled, I don't know. Um, I, I got some news this morning. It was a little bit different than what I anticipated I would hear uh, about the situation, but at this point I'm not divulging a thing because I don't know how accurate that news is. All I can tell you is uh, it's right now the discussions are being had about it, and other than that, that's as far as I can go with it. When you look at a year ago, Don, in, this, in the Indiana basketball program, you know, Jalen Hood Shafino was clearly a really special talent. I mean, I, I'm not breaking any news there. But so much of the offense w- was, you know, run through what he was able to do with Trace Jackson Davis. And obviously, Trace Jackson Davis, I watched him playing well in Golden State. But who handles now, who kind of carries that torch, if you will, of now for Indiana, the guy who the ball goes in his hands, and that's where everything kind of goes through, where you feel the most comfortable. Who's the guy that you think that Woodson looks at this year to kind of take over that role? Well, I think that's somewhat obvious just because of his experience level, and that would be Xavier Johnson. I mean, he's he's the oldest guy on the team. Yeah, and you almost he forget about guy. him because of last year, right? I mean, I hate to say forget about him, but you know what I mean? Right, because he sat out most of the season. So, uh, and, and there's no question, I think, that Mike is looking at he and Trey Galloway as the two leaders on this ball club. They are the most experienced guys on this team. Um, and without question, uh, Xavier, you know, has kind of bought into Mike Woodson's system. I mean, Woody has always said, I'm harder on my point guards than anybody else. And, and right now, he is the guy. Gabe Cubs, the freshman. Uh, point guard for Ohio is looking very good to me as well, but I think it'll be Xavier Johnson who everything has to go through this year, at least initially, because uh, without a doubt, he's the most experienced ball player on this team, and he's the point guard. So, uh, I mean, it could change as the year goes on. They might be playing three three guards in the lineup at some point. Who knows? But again, that's kind of the thing you're always looking to see how they're going to develop this team and how they'll end up playing as the season progresses, because they got a tough schedule. And right now, I think everything's in the experimental stage of things. And with the game against Indianapolis coming up on Sunday, the first exhibition game, and then one on the following Friday against Marion, we'll get an opportunity to kind of see what Mike is planning on doing or how he plans to handle things, because it's going to be a different look this year for this ball club and the experience level on this team, not what we've seen in the past. And of course, outside conference games against the likes of Connecticut and Kansas. So a lot of opportunity for Mike Woodson to find out where his team is before they get into the heart of Big Ten play. Don, appreciate it as always. Look forward to talking to you next week as well. Guys, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Again, Don Fisher, the voice of the Indiana Hoosiers. That was the maniacal laugh, by the way, of Joel A. Erickson. Speaking of the fact that in that 
originated when I divulged to, to Joel A. Erickson, Wisconsin native, that the land where Jeffrey Dahmer's chocolate factory was, where he worked, is now the site of the Milwaukee arena where the first ever event was a double billing concert between the killers and the violent films. And along the lines of that same creepy stuff, I did go to the Amityville horror house. It's horror. Yeah. House. yeah. I want to make sure. Okay. Good. Uh, on long Island site of the Amityville horror book and movie from like the late seventies, early eighties. Um, and it's a super cool house on a street where like every house is like a million dollars. Anybody yell at you? No, actually, the guy across the street, this is the best part about it. So they, they said, I had read that the woman who owns the house where Amityville Horror had taken place, um, like, isn't keen on people coming by, but it's like Halloween time, so there's like, I'm sure, constantly people going by. Across the street and down two houses was a huge house where the guy had like 50 Halloween decorations set up, strobe lights, like all kinds of you the know, whole night. Like music, and how about this, a like eight foot by eight foot high def screen in his front yard that was showing amityville horror so like what you could sit in the street and watch the (laughs) you know whatever and he came out and i talked to him super nice guy and he's like you know what like you live on the street you got to embrace it people come by all the time the lady that lives in the house is nice as can be it's not really haunted it's just one guy that wanted insurance money killed his family like 50 years ago i'm like okay cool uh joining us now and i'm sure thrilled to be doing so on that segue joel a erickson of the indianapolis star uh, speaking of Amityville horror, it was essentially that for Daryl Baker Jr. at the end of the game yesterday. Joel, has the league uh, – I have not – obviously, we've been on the air, so I haven't seen today. Has there been any sort of a, like, statement from the league about those plays at the end and the possibility of those calls being errant that went against the Colts? I don't think it cost the Colts the game. I think the Colts cost themselves by putting themselves in that position. But two pretty bad calls, right? Yeah, and you know the, the league hasn't said anything, but I think I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of take this one. I'm I'm the pool reporter, um, and in the moment I didn't realize uh, part part of it. I, you don't want to make excuses for this, but part of it is that we're writing stuff that goes up immediately at the buzzer, and you're you're not as locked in on it maybe as you need to be. Um, but I think that we probably should have sent me down and done a pool report now. Uh, the, the, other people can ask to send me down to do the pool report. It's not just. Can, you, can me, you explain? But, by the way, Joel, my apologies. Can you explain to our listeners because I know what you mean by that. I know what pool reporter right. means. I don't know that the average listener knows. Can you explain uh, as if I'm a second grader what that means when you say pool report and send you down? So uh, the referees do not talk after every game. Uh, they can be requested by the people in the press box that when. But unlike, you know, Shane Steichen or, uh, you know, Jonathan Taylor or somebody like that, they don't speak to – the refs don't speak to, like, you know, 20 people. Uh, there's a pool reporter designated for each team whose job it is to uh, talk to the refs if there is a questionable call. And like I said, it comes from a request from us. I I, I was thinking about it today. I think in hindsight, uh, that's, that's probably – what we should have done, we we kind of we kind of missed it. I kind of missed it in in the moment in terms of getting an explanation from the referees. I, I think the thing I really would have liked to have asked most of all um, is how do you how to determine whether or not a ball is catchable or not on the pass interference. Joel, I, again, I'm not I'm not going to sit here and say like, oh man, that's because you're right. It is a missed opportunity, but in terms of 
after the fact, is there anything from a like your storyboard standpoint or anybody else that is on the beat that could reach out to the NFL for clarification on that after the fact, or is it just in that moment as the pool reporter? It's typically it's typically just in that moment. They don't really do the whole, you know, like the NBA has the – doesn't the NBA have like a two-minute report? Yes, last two minutes, yep. Yeah, I, they, there's not really – there's not really anything like that in the NFL. I, we'll, we'll probably end up asking the Colts if they ask for clarification on those calls. And, um, you know, the answers we get back from those sometimes kind of depends on the coach, kind of depends on what their league says about the call. Um, but it's usually not super revealing. Joel, the one to me, I mentioned this earlier, you had two plays to end that game. And first off, the Colts should not have allowed P.J. Walker to get even in position there in the first place to, to run that offense down the field. I thought they were way too soft defensively to, to get Cleveland down into that position. But nonetheless, to me, the, the more questionable call was the illegal contact because – and that negated the Colts what appeared to be game-ending takeaway. That play, once that – that backwards pass is released it's essentially a free ball and once it's a free ball there is no offensive player to be protected by that rule because there's no offensive defense there is no possession at all and that's the one that I'm surprised that 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 hasn't been questioned more or am I totally off base in that perception so I I saw a screenshot that basically showed the cut and contact in the secondary happening sort of simultaneously with, with speed making the hit um, from a, a referee's perspective. And my uncle, who's been a, uh, a ref in Wisconsin high school football for a long time, will be mad at me for not knowing this exactly. But um, the, uh, like, I, I think that the, the person throwing the flag is probably not looking in the backfield. At that I think point. I think that is fair the because they are in they are responsible for one area of the field and not in totality. Correct. correct? Yeah. Yeah. Correct. And so that that might lead to it. Like I said, that's just one screenshot I saw. It made it look like it was it was sort of simultaneous. And then, you know, in terms of getting the guy, I know they got together and talked about the call. I, I wonder if that's part of it. You know, was the ball gone? That kind of thing. Now, in terms of the the game itself, um, silver linings, uh, maybe lurking issues, etc. We'll begin with silver linings. Jonathan Taylor, I thought that was the most that they obviously have presented him, but it, it appeared to me, Joel, that Jonathan Taylor did start to show that, yes, in fact, he's healthy and he is um, going to be a weapon for them. Are they going to start – is Shane Steichen going to come up with even more ways to utilize Jonathan Taylor? I, I think so. I think you're already starting to see it. You know, some of the stuff they're doing with him in the past game is stuff that in the past would have been more Naheem Hines' stuff. But if you go back and look at his his first couple of years in the league, on the on the ball he caught, he was averaging I think it was I think it's something like eight one year and then nine point three yards per catch uh, in in his first two seasons. He he can be a more than more, a lot of running backs usually in their yards per catch are kind of in the five, six checkdownish type range. Taylor's speed allows him to do more than that. It seems like Steichen is trying to tap into that. I also think that the Wildcat using him, it wasn't super successful yesterday, but I think that's another indicator that they're looking for ways to feature him. I'm with you. I thought that yesterday was a 
sort of a clear sign that it's time to give the offense back to Jonathan Taylor. Um, and I actually thought uh, that one drive when they were backed up and they ran Zach Moss three times, I thought, no, I thought 28 should have gotten at least one of those carries. I agree with you on that, Joel. Is that in part because it's clear they still had a snap count on him? Yeah. I, I mean, it only went up eight percentage points in terms of snap count from a week ago. It was 39-33 week six, and this was right down the middle, 35-35 between him and Zach Moss. Is that what it was yesterday? I I think that's possible, but it also, you know, that, that, that it – it didn't jump up enough. It jumped up much more from the first week to the second week. And I think that, you know, a handful of snaps more on that drive, maybe a couple more snaps to get a first down and, you know, whatever happens after that, it, it probably wouldn't have put it out that much. Taylor seemed to me, seems to me to be ready to go. I think, I think having Zach Moss there, obviously it keeps you from, you know, having to run him into the ground the way they've had to do in the past. But, but, yeah, I, I think we're kind of in a spot now where, especially in that game, that close, he was just the more effective back in the second half. And I would have liked to have seen him in in that, that situation specifically. Did the lack of targets towards any tight end, is that more schematic out of Shane Steichen or is that more lack of tight ends stepping forward? I, I think it's a common – well, it's Kylan Granson obviously wasn't available. Right. That's, he's sort of a receiving tight end. That's part of it. I think the other thing um, to look at is Miles Garrett was on the other team. Yeah, fair. And there was a lot of tight end chipping, some some effective, some not. Uh, I think that probably had something to do with it too, is that your, your, your tight ends end up being a way that you can try to slow him down in one way or the other. And I, I would assume that the Colts thought that was probably more important. I, I thought their receivers played fairly well yesterday, too. So, yeah, I, I, I think that the, the presence of Miles Garrett may be the, the smoking gun on the tight end position. Michael Pittman Jr. after the game. Joel A. Erickson is our guest of the Indianapolis Star, talking about the Colts yesterday, their loss to the Cleveland Browns. Uh, I was surprised by this, Joel, that Michael Pittman Jr. made comment about his lack of targets. Alec Pierce was thrown three balls. I believe he caught all three. Josh Downs had a really big game. But Pittman Jr. is still the most targeted receiver within the Colts' receiving core. Is this a problem that could be percolating for the Colts? I I think it's more likely at this point that it was just the frustration of a close game and that when we talk to Pittman later on this week, he, he may not have the same... Uh, feeling on it, just given what he's done over the course of the season. Uh, I, I think that, yeah, I, stuff comes out after after losses. Emotions come out after losses, especially close ones, that maybe maybe once you've had some time to reflect, don't don't end up the same way. And obviously, he's, he's, he's gotten a lot of targets in this offense this year. So uh, that'd be my guess. I think it becomes an issue if, if we talk to him later this week and he says, and he says, no, I'm doubling down. I, I I did not get the ball enough. A couple of times the last couple of weeks now, we've seen pressure be let up on the offensive line, and it puts Gardner Mitchell in a situation where he can no longer try to make reads. He needs to either tuck the ball and prepare for the impact or get rid of the football. How much of the strip sacks the last couple of weeks and very impactful, of course, yesterday against Cleveland, does that blame go on Minshew? Well, if you look at if you look at Minshew's career, um, 
my my editor Nat Newell ran the numbers on Pro Football Reference on this. He he has now fumbled 27 times in 27 career starts, and that's not that's not perfect because there's been a lot of games in his career where he's come in and played significantly, the way he took over for Richardson a couple times this year. Um, but even even accounting for that noise, that that would put him at the low end. Uh, close to the bottom of, of quarterbacks in the NFL over over the time he's been in the league. And so it's this is something I think that, that is probably going to keep coming up. At least, you know, historically his interception percentage is generally not that high over the course of his career. The, the fumbles have been an issue, though, and we, we're kind of seeing them, you know, a couple weeks in a row now. So by the way, speaking of noise, Joel, we're getting a little bit on the reception. So, Eddie, I'm going to have you actually see if you can reconnect with Joel real quick um, just to get rid of – so it doesn't sound like he's coming in like a 45 record uh, on an AM station. But um, Change the record. Flip it over. B-side. But that's right. You know, the um, it's a great question about Minshew and, and the, the turnovers, right? Because I, I don't – Part of that is also, I, I think part of that, Jimmy, is the answer of, you know, Miles Garrett, right? I mean, just, it's been a long time. Miles Garrett is a guy that, it's never sexy to take a defensive player number one overall in the draft, right? But good Lord, like that guy is, I, I mean, he absolutely, at least in the first half of that game for the most part, Jimmy, he controlled that game, controlled it. And... I thought, and we'll bring Joel back into this for this part of it. Joel, for as much as we want to talk about the two penalties at the end of the game costing the Colts, I thought where the Colts really hurt themselves was take me through the thought process for for the Colts at the end of the half instead of just running out the half and going in to the locker room with the lead, trying to throw the ball with Miles Garrett lined up there that deep in your own territory. That, to me, was a fatal, fatal mistake. Yeah, I, I think that one just came down to – I think that basically just came down to Shane Sykin got greedy. They're, they were in a shootout, uh, sort of an unexpected shootout, I think. And uh, and I, I think he started feeling like, hey, we've got to, we've got to chase points here and we've got two minutes and, and let's do it. And, I, I you know, he kind of said at the end of the game that after the game, that's on him. He, he just kind of owned it. I, I think that's what happened. He, he, he wanted to be aggressive because there were a lot of points being scored in that game and – you know, but didn't take into account enough what Miles Garrett can do. Is it more on Chris Ballard or on Gus Bradley if an injury to a piece in the secondary, more notably in this case a rookie who showed promising bright spots in Juju Brents, that an injury like that could then have ramifications where you're out of position or you have an offense that's picking on you, which ends up leading to Baker giving up the, the two penalties, whether Colts fans agree with them or not. Is that more on lack of bodies at the position or is it more on just the scheme in your mind? I, I, I think it's, I think it's on the lack of, of good options Yeah, uh, at the, at the cornerback position. You know, it, we coming into this season, I think we all said, if you're going to go into the season where your cornerback depth outside of Kenny Moore is essentially um, two guys who were undrafted free agents a year ago and have not played much versus, um, you know, and then a bunch of rookies, you're, you're probably going to have issues. It's, it's probably unrealistic to think that you're not going to have issues. And that was before injuries started happening and you lose Dallas Flowers, who was the more experienced of the two. Um, you know, they added a cornerback last week, but that, that he's not a player who's any, any more experienced. He's another rookie. So 
I think that there's there, there's not a good option for them to go to, an experienced option for them to go to in those situations. I, I think that falls more on the front office than it does on, on Bradley. Joel, kind of a weird question because of corporate buyouts and companies that like now actually own it technically elsewhere in other countries, et cetera. But if we're just going based on the origin, like if we're pretending that every beer is actually brewed in its origin city, what is the best Wisconsin beer? Uh, for it's it's for me it's New Glarus Fat Squirrel. Okay, that's not a bad. One. That's like a that's like a kind of like Newcastle, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's not a bad yeah, call. Spotted Spotted Cow gets the love from New Glarus because it's the most famous one, and that's but, like the that's their cream ale, right? Yeah, a little, not really a cream ale, but definitely lighter. Okay, yeah, definitely definitely lighter. That's more of the more of like the, the classic sort of Wisconsin lager. Um, and it's it's like for a lager, it's really good. But I just kind of like stuff with a little bit more to it. I, I I'd go fat squirrel, or actually, you know what? Um, Cabin Fever, which is one of their seasonals, that one is really good too. And that one's kind of like got some honey notes, but not like aggressively. I don't know. That one's really good. Now, no wait a minute. How can you give no love no love to PBR? It's got to be PBR, right? I, I I do love PBR. Yeah, ninth and Juno, right there, right next, right next to the chocolate factory. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I I do love PBR, but New Glarus New Glarus is the standard bearer now. How about Schlitz? Schlitz is a little bit. We're getting in now. Schlitz is a little bit getting more into the. Oh no, what have I done? Old Milwaukee. <laughs> Old Milwaukee is definitely in that. Milwaukee's Milwaukee's best is. There's, there's like nicknames for these that I can't say on the radio. Yeah, the Beast. I, Milwaukee's Best, when I was in college, the rumor was, the urban legend of Milwaukee's Best was that they took all the spilled over beer from like Miller Lite, Old <laughs> Milwaukee, and the others and poured it into one. Like, yeah, and then it won Best Beer Competition, so they decided to bottle it. That was always the rumor I, on Milwaukee's the, Best. I've heard the exact same rumor yeah. like many, many times. Do you yeah. think it's true? Have you done a tour? Of, do you want to go up to Milwaukee and do a tour of the Milwaukee's Best Brewery and watch them do that? I... I uh, if that's what they do, absolutely. I, I've been, <laughs> I've been, I've been taken to task though because I keep whenever we go up to Wisconsin, my wife really wants to tour the new Glarus Brewing Company. It's a little out of our way, but the last time I suggested it, I stupidly suggested it while she was pregnant with our third son and couldn't have alcohol. Yeah, that's she was good. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> well, first why off, is, why are you <laughs> suggesting it on this trip? And listen, I love Wisconsin, but let's be real. If you're anywhere in Wisconsin, you're already out of your way, right? So what the hell? Why not go? Let's be real. I mean, come on. Um, hey, Joel, let's let's assess the offensive line for the Colts yesterday. Your thoughts on, you know, Miles Garrett is kind of a cheat code. I realize it. So there's a huge challenge there. But your thoughts on the nonstop, I guess, evaluation and assessment of the Colts offensive line. It, the, the penalties were an issue, uh, too. I think that's another piece of this. I, I think you do kind of with Garrett, you're going to have, I mean, just look at the way he blocked the field goal. You know, that's just not a human thing to do. Um, so, so there are, you do have to, to give them some Miles Garrett, you know, points in their favor. But I, I didn't think it was their best game. I know Ryan Kelly kind of said he felt like they left some stuff out there. They, they need Braden Smith back. I think that's pretty obvious. Um, they, they they had been trending in a very good way to start the season and had played really well. Um, I, I didn't think yesterday was. I didn't think yesterday was a continuation of that. 
Uh, Eddie, you had a point or something you wanted to, to point out about the, the distribution in terms of the running back touches, correct? Yeah, Joel. So yesterday, Taylor has that drive, seven touches, 50 yards, and a touchdown. And then the next two drives after that, Moss, six attempts, seven yards. Taylor, three attempts, zero yards with one reception. I just thought the game at, the, at, at that point, you needed to ride the hot hand in Jonathan Taylor because he was the reason why you just cut it from uh, whatever it was, 10-2 to two or whatever, the 9-2 to two at that point of the game. I just didn't like how they went away from Taylor after that uh, one drive where he led them down the field. Yeah, I agree with that. I, it's like I said, that's kind of what I ended up writing ultimately after I, I mean, I wrote some some stuff on the penalties and some stuff on Shane Steichen's decision making. But then, my 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 the, the main story I wrote was it's it's we're at the point now where Jonathan Taylor looks like it's time it's time for the offense to run through him. Everything needs to go through him now, and especially in the fourth quarter. Like if, if that's if that's whoever your guy is when the offense is being run through in a close game, that's who should be getting it in the fourth quarter. I had mentioned earlier, Joel, when Jimmy and I were talking, last night I'm watching the Dolphins and the Eagles, and I love the Eagles' Kelly Green uniforms, by the way. Um, and in watching that, you know, Tyree Kill, it just completely opens up everything for Miami the way that you constantly have to account for where he is because of his speed and his, his ability in space. And it does feel like Taylor has that kind of capability for the Colts. Is that where we're headed with Shane Steichen? And then do you become too reliant on it and it becomes something that dis- that, that takes away from distributing the ball elsewhere? I, I, I don't think – I actually don't think with Steichen that it will end up taking away from it because they have the opportunity with Zach Moss to kind of, I don't know, keep the, keep the defense keep, – first of all, keep Taylor fresh, but then also sort of – the defense has these moments where they're not paying attention as much to, to what's going on with 28. And I, I do think Taylor is that guy, uh, especially, especially the way they're, especially the way they're configured with Gardner Minshew. We're, we're just not going to see teams. Um, teams are going to, to gear up for the run. And I think, I think my expectation is that Shane Steichen is going to try to use that against people. He's going to try to figure out ways to, Use Jonathan Taylor and the threat of Jonathan Taylor not only to get in the ball, but also to, um, you know, to, to to make defenses end up being wrong by chasing him. Um, and I think I'll probably open it. It should open stuff up for the rest of the offense. I, the hard part, though, is that you know, with, with Minshew back there, there are limitations to the passing game and what they can do. And that's that's going to be the kind of tough part the rest of the season is you're going to try to emphasize Taylor, but you don't really have what you want at the at the in the passing game. Joel, is it pretty clear at this point, regardless of what happens with the Michael Pippen Jr. drama, that when you're mapping out the roster next year, it should be him and Josh Downs? Like, solidified as those pieces. You need to build around them. Obviously, you have JT, but in the passing game specifically, have we seen enough from Downs and we've seen a body of work from Michael Pittman Jr. that, yes, that's a solid start to a receiving core? I, I think I think the three of them together, I, I, thought, I actually think Alex Pierce has had a pretty good couple weeks here in a row. Um, and I think the three of them together, their their roles all make sense playing off of each other. Um, I, I think that to some degree, I think Alec Pierce gets hurt a lot by what he hasn't been able to play with at the quarterback position in terms of like his, his skills. He's supposed to be the guy who's getting downfield and you know winning jump balls like the one he won the other day. They haven't necessarily had the guy who could throw those. Um, outside of you know 173 snaps with Richardson earlier this season, 
But I, I do think that there's I do think that there's there's the the Steichen really wants receiver and cores that have guys who can do different things in different roles. And those three really do set up that way. Um, now, with Michael Pittman, I, I think the sticker shock is going to get some people. And, you know, whether or not you feel like – I think whether, whether or not you feel like he deserves what he's probably going to get, either from the Colts or from somebody else, is, is, a, is a different argument. But it, it feels to me like they've got something there, especially with the way Downs is playing now. Um, and not just not just making you know the plays out of the slot, but he, the the big plays from Downs I think really add something. Now Lakefront Brewery in Milwaukee, I like Joel. That one. Yeah, and I don't know if you know this. Have you done the tour of that one? I haven't done the tour. I've I've eaten there and and you know partook partook in the in the uh, the main part of the the brewery there. Yeah, several. it's kind of like it's kind of like the Sun King one on college, right? It's got like the big room with the food and and you know, it's a cool joint. Uh and it's also fun because like I've always been in December and I'm the only guy not wearing flannel. Um and <laughs> at Lakefront Brewery, if you do a tour of the brewery itself. Here here's my tip for those that are traveling to Milwaukee. If you go to Lakefront Brewery and you do a tour of the brewery itself, in the tour, that is actually the brewery where they filmed the opening scene of Laverne and Shirley, which I'm the only one of the four of us here that knows what I'm talking about, but in the opening scene of Laverne and Shirley, when Laverne and Shirley are bottling the beers and they put the glove on the beer and it it takes off and then they're waiting for it, that actually was filmed in the spot that is now Lakefront Brewery, and they let you reenact that when you're on the brewery tour. That's my tip for people that go to Milwaukee. Yeah, I I, I need to do some of these tours. The the complicating factor is that my kids are seven, five, and one. Mm Mm-hmm. On some of these trips, and so, but well, the, we also, the drinking also, age I'm in Milwaukee's so, nine, so you just give it two more years, right? I'm I'm very close to my my hometown where my dad still is 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 like 20 minutes away from the Line and Kugel uh, Brewery too. So, like, there's there's a couple of places here I need to I need to mark off. I just need what what, what we need is we need the grandparents to come with us and and volunteer to take some child <laughs> is, duty. Well, wait a minute. If your dad's so you drop the kids off with your dad and then you go and you do the line of Kugel deal, right? Uh, generally, but my my dad is the my dad is the grandpa who always has something planned. Okay. <laughs> so so like we get up there and he's like, okay, we're doing this, 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 um, and the kids love it, you know. So so that's that's the that's the complicating factor there. All right, fair enough. Uh, Colts getting ready for the New Orleans Saints coming up. That is the next on the schedule. And, Joel, I'm sure we will talk to you again either just before that game or probably just following as well. But appreciate certainly the time today in talking about the Colts and Browns from yesterday. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, Joel A. Erickson of the Indianapolis Star on the hotline. 2.30 in Indianapolis. For that matter, it's 2.30 everywhere in the Eastern Time Zone. My name is Jake Query. Eddie Garrison, Jimmy Cook joining me here on Query & Company. Pacers getting the season underway Wednesday night. Gamebridge Fieldhouse, the Washington Wizards will be there. And joining us now to talk about that and more, Danny Lopez of the Pacers. And Danny, I always forget because it's the longest title known to man. Your exact title with the Pacers is Vice President of... External affairs and corporate communications, Jake. Have you ever heard anything like that? No, no. Well, can we can we actually um, can we can we list you in the company as the vice president of external affairs and corporate communication for querying company? Is that cool? You, you, you can. That's fine. You okay. can list me however you want. Well, listen. The last time we talked to you, um, and for that matter, I think probably the first couple times I was talking to you. It was and man, time flies because Danny, we first talked about. And I want to touch on this. 
just the pavilion itself out in front of Gamebridge Fieldhouse and what was just a vision when we first talked to you about it. And I was at an event downtown about two weeks ago and really kind of strolled through there for the first time. And it's pretty awesome. And, you know, it's kind of multi-purpose, I guess, for this season in terms of as the weather changes, it's going to be able to be used in a couple of different ways. But for those that have not been downtown for a while and might be going to their first Pacer game in a while on Wednesday, give us a glimpse as to what people can experience on their way into the game. Yeah, well, thanks, Jake. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's, it's awesome out there. I mean, there, there's there's not a day that, that goes by that I don't go out there and there's people playing basketball, there's people just sitting and having lunch. Um, you know, when that, wh- that where that plaza is now, obviously it was the parking garage, and when we tore that thing down, that's when we realized how closed off we had been from downtown. So now it's just wide open. you got tons of public art. You've got Sphere that's got a that's got a video running out there all throughout the day on different things. You've got, um, you know, you've got obviously the basketball court, a lot of covered areas, a lot of green spaces, tables so you can sit down and, and eat lunch or, or have a meeting or whatever. It's just a really cool spot in the downtown. And it, it just opens everything up. I mean, you see all the architecture, you see the skyline, you feel like you're in a really walkable, nice downtown. And it's, it's a, it's a super spot. It's a really nice spot. And of course you mentioned it, but we'll have, ice skating on there uh, coming up here shortly in another month. We've got all kinds of activities that are happening out there uh, and concerts and movie showings and other things and, you know, pregame parties as we ramp up uh, for the season coming up here on Wednesday. Okay, so speaking of Wednesday and pregame parties, um, there is an opportunity for those that might not have tickets for the game on Wednesday. You guys in about 30 minutes are going to start taking care of some people in that regard, right? Yeah, I mean, this is a big, big day for us every single year uh, when we do this event. We partner with Kroger uh, here in 30 minutes. This is your 30-minute warning or your 27-minute warning because in in 27 minutes all over our social media channels, uh, we're going to put up four locations, four Kroger locations throughout the city where players and staff and DJs and others are going to be the mascots. They're going to be out handing out $50,000 worth of gas and groceries. We'll be pumping gas for folks. We'll be giving away $25 gift, gift cards for Kroger. It's uh, just a nice way where, as we get ready for the season, we can give back to the fans. How big was that a year ago, the impact that that had? Because you obviously still have on Pacers.com the reactionary piece to you guys reaching out to the community and partnering with Kroger. How big was that turnaround to obviously motivate it to not only be back again, but you mentioned up to $50,000 in giveaways this year? I mean, you know, look, people people are feeling it right now. It's a, it's a tough time for a lot of people, and, and we knew that last year. We had lines of cars and people, you know, 10, 12 deep in the, uh, inside the, the Kroger's just, you know, wanting to get gift cards and wanting to meet the players and stuff. It's just a fun thing that we, we know is meaningful for a lot of people. And I tell you what, we have such a young team. We've got a young group of players, as you all know, and for them – this, this is pretty meaningful, too, because they get out and they get to meet real people and they take pictures and they sign autographs. It's just a really cool experience for everybody involved, but it actually happens to be super meaningful for a lot of people, too. Danny Lopez is our guest. He's the Vice President for External Affairs and Corporate Communications for Pacers Sports and Entertainment. Pacers season getting underway on Wednesday. We'll let you know one more time before we finish here how you can find out your ways to get tickets via Kroger and the Pacers for Wednesday night's game against the Wizards. Danny, I'm curious, though, in the last, say, six months, how many days have passed where you have not been involved in some conversation, meeting, or text, email, whatever it might be, in terms of planning for the All-Star game? 
Oh, but it's it's nonstop. It's going to be such an awesome, awesome event. And whether you're a basketball fan, whether you have tickets to any of the specific events that are happening in all, you know, during All Star uh, those four days, uh, it is just going to be awesome environment downtown. And so when when you know when when February 16th comes and everything's ramping up downtown, people are really going to feel that they're in this footprint, and it's going to be very different from any All Star that that has come before. And part of it is truly. We've been planning this for seven years. It was seven years ago that that Larry uh, Larry drove that 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 Indy car on Fifth Avenue and hand delivered that bid. We did it differently right out right out of the gate. Nobody had ever done anything like that, obviously, and nobody has planned an All Star this way. Where we've got four hundred people on our host committee, they're all involved. Everybody's excited. Tons of volunteers. Uh, it's just going to be a really really great weekend. Okay, Danny, and one more time. Way, and, what... and, and the la- sorry, the last thing I'm going to say about that is it's our chance to really put the city on display for a global audience. It's an international game. It's an international audience, and this is our chance to show off the city. I mean, it's going to be – you know, I, for that matter, just the, the Saturday night stuff alone, and for those that are unfamiliar, the – the some of the pregame festivities in terms of what like the dunk contest and the three point shootout those those kind of events yeah. those are going to be at Lucas Oil right and then the game itself at Gamebridge Fieldhouse correct All Star Saturday night uh, so the dunk contest the skills competition the three point contest that piece will be at Lucas Oil and there'll be some other things at Lucas Oil and then a lot of the events including uh, game uh, including the, the game itself will be at Gamebridge but you know that that's the thing you hit the nail on the head when when I think about All-Star as a kid probably you too I think about those slam dunk contests or the three point contest those are the memories that are burned in people's minds and to be able to pull that many people this this being the most fan facing All-Star that has ever been done and be able to pull those those people and that number of people into a, a, a facility like Lucas Oil at those price points is just an incredible thing in and of itself. So it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be something community-driven, uh, totally different from any other All-Star before. And it's funny, too, Danny, because when I was a kid, when the 85 All-Star game was here, Ralph Sampson, your MVP, um, you know, th- at that time, the dunk contest and everything was at Market Square, and the game itself was at the Dome. So now flipped, which I think shows the providence of Gamebridge Fieldhouse and just the, the showcase of the Fieldhouse itself for the city now here in 2023. So people that would like to go into the Fieldhouse that want to go to the game on Wednesday or be able to take advantage of what Kroger is partnering with can do so. Tell me again what's taking place. Check out our social media handles here in 22 minutes at 3 o'clock. All over our social media handles, we'll have information on four Kroger locations. They're spread out uh, all across the city so that people can get to them. Come on out. Visit with the players. They'll sign some autographs. They'll hand out gift cards. They'll pump some gas for you. Uh, and there'll be music and staff, and you'll just have a, a real good time. Uh, it'll be like a block party out there, and we're really excited to give away $50,000 in gas and groceries uh, this afternoon through Kroger. Excellent. Danny, appreciate it, man. Good talking to you. Thank you, Jake. Take care. All right, Danny Lopez from Pacer Sports and Entertainment.